Please turn to the first chapter of the book of Ephesians. I want to read verses 3 through 10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to, the, to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. That is actually one sentence in the Greek New Testament. So if you're somewhere playing Bible trivia, and somebody asks, what is the longest sentence in the Bible, you have the answer right there. And that thrills you, I, I can tell. It is really um, kind of like the last will and testament of Jesus. For in this wonderful and long sentence, he names all of the blessings that make up our spiritual wealth. Did you see the cartoon of the pompous attorney about to read a will? And he uh, has his half glasses down on his nose. There are these anxious people out there waiting for the results of the reading of the will. He clears his throat and reads, I, John Jones, being of sound mind, spent it all. <laughs> when Jesus wrote his will, he included us in his riches. Instead of spending it all, he paid it all. And he wrote us into his will, then he died so that that will can go into effect. And we're having the reading of the will this morning. That is, all that is ours in Christ is regard, with regard to the blessings that make up our spiritual wealth. Now, when I was a kid growing up, my dad out on the farm decided one year he'd plant a big watermelon patch. It was huge. It went all the way around this terracing that we had. There were literally hundreds of vines of watermelons. And one, one uh, day, a friend of mine came home to stay the night, and we decided we'd go out and eat some watermelon. And what we did, we just went out and we just broke open a watermelon, and then we'd put our grimy hands down in the middle of that watermelon, in the heart of it, and just take out a big chunk and eat it and go on to the next one. We broke up about 25 watermelons, just eating a heart out of them. My dad discovered that a couple of days later, much to his unhappiness and he applied appropriate <laughs> measures for that. And uh, I've never liked watermelon since. Got a big, a big hang-up about watermelon. Now, 
What I want to do this morning is come to this text and I just want to break it open and I just want to dig out some of the great riches of this. And I want us to stand before it and to gaze upon it and to glory in it and exult in it as we discover what is ours with regard to spiritual wealth. The first is found in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. That word blessed as it is applied to the God and Father of Jesus Christ is the word eulogites in the Greek and it, it, we get our word eulogy from that. It means to speak well of and it's a word that is only applied to God. And what he's saying is this, is that we need to bless Him and speak well of Him. We need to honor Him and glorify Him because He has blessed us in every conceivable way. Now the second word sounds exactly like the first blessed, but it's a different word in the Greek, and it, and it reflects a different tense, the aorist tense, so that it, is, it refers to action. And what he's saying is, is that we bless Him with our thoughts and our words because in every conceivable way, in deed and action, He has poured out His blessing upon us. Now I need to say three things about this blessing of God. First of all, the source of it is the Holy Spirit. And the seat of it is in the heavenlies. Now watch this. This is what he's saying. He's saying, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he has gone up to heaven, he has gone into heaven, and he's brought down to earth some of the very blessings we will experience when we get to heaven. So that on this earth as believers, we share in and we experience now a part of what it's going to be like when we get to heaven. That great old song, one of my favorites, We're Marching to Zion. One of the verses, one of the stanzas goes like this. The hills of Zion yield a thousand sacred sweets before we reach those heavenly fields or walk those golden streets. Somebody said, when I get to heaven and I look around, I know I'm going to feel like I've been there before. I'm going to say, hey, this looks familiar. I mean, I've experienced some of this down on the earth because the Holy Spirit brings the blessings of heaven and He applies those blessings here in this life. And so you and I, because we're believers, experience a part of what heaven's like. The seat of it is the heavenlies and the sphere of it is Jesus Christ. So the source is the Holy Spirit and the seat is the heavenlies and the sphere is in Jesus Christ. Now what he means by that is this, is that when you come to know Jesus Christ because of your relationship to Jesus Christ, you experience through the ministry of the Holy Spirit what heaven's like. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Now, I'm not sure exactly how to describe what heaven's like, but it's, if it's anything like knowing Jesus Christ on earth, can't wait till I get there. The second piece of meat that comes out of this marvelous text is found in verse 4. And it's, it, it refers to the idea of election. Now, notice what it says. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Now I'm not going to stand up here this morning and try to explain to you the doctrine of election. It's so difficult to for you to understand. I'm not going to do that because I don't understand it either. 
be foolish for me to try to help you understand the doctrine of election if I don't understand it myself. Uh, Louis Barry Schaefer said, if you try to explain the doctrine of election, you may lose your mind. If you try to explain it away, you may lose your soul. Now, whatever else we can say about election, what, what we do know about the doctrine of election is this, is that in pre-creation, God purposed a special purpose for your life. He purposed that He would make you His special people, His special children. And whatever else election means, it means this, that salvation is wholly a work of God from its origin to its completion. Now, you didn't have anything to do with it because you weren't even here. Pre-creation, you didn't have it coming because you hadn't even existed. He chose you because He loves you. Out of His grace, He chose you. And Moses tried to explain that to the, uh, to the Jews in the book of Deuteronomy, how God would choose them as a special nation. This is the way he put it. He said, God has not chosen you because you were greater in number than all the other peoples. You were fewer in numbers. But because He loves you, He's chosen you. Now, it's not necessary this morning to understand the doctrine of election because the New Testament doesn't explain it. I mean, check it out. Nowhere is there definitive explanation of the doctrine of election. It's just presented there. I mean, Jesus talks about it. He said, uh, he, he refers to those the Father gave Him. And, and the New Testament just places before us this great idea that God has chosen us so that we can exult in it and gaze upon it and glory in it. You know how wonderful it feels when you're chosen. When you were chosen for some team, you know how thrilled you were. I got a football suit for, the, for middle school when I was in the sixth grade, the only sixth grader. How about that? Man, you think I didn't feel good? You know how terrible it feels when you don't get chosen? I mean, there's some people walking around on planet Earth that are so fouled up with their, in their mental image because they were never chosen for a team or they were like last. You know, it's like you can have him, you know, kind of thing. You know how wonderful it feels when you're chosen? Do you know that feeling that comes when you're chosen by the outstretched arms of a little child and that little child is saying, I love you, I enjoy you, I care for you. And so I'm standing here and a groom is standing here and the door opens and in steps a beautiful bride. Now I'm not sure what's going on, but I have an idea. He's looking at her and she's looking at him and she's thinking, I'm the most blessed person in the world because of all women you've ever known, you've chosen me. And as she starts down the aisle, he's looking at her and he's saying, man, am I lucky. The most beautiful woman in this whole earth has chosen me. Wow, what a thought. Now I need to say two things about this election. The occasion of this election is in him. Now, now notice what he says. He says, he has chosen us in him. I want to give you a personal illustration of that. Then I want to give you a biblical illustration of it. Played a little high school football about a week before our, my senior season began. Our assistant coach quit. I guess he looked over the prospects of the fall and quit. And so they were scrambling around trying to find a coach. And uh, there was a guy named Joe Spann who, who played, he, he's from Monday, and he played on the last district championship that the mighty Monday Moguls had. 
And he was, he was working for Lone Star Gas Company out at Hereford, Texas, way out in the panhandle. And, and, they, and, he, and he was wanting to get, get into coaching. So they called old Joe and said, would you like to coach the mighty Monday Moguls? Of course, he jumped on it. And he showed up on the first day of practice, didn't know anything about anybody. And so uh, the head coach got the backs and the, and the speedy ones, and the rest of us went down to the other end with the uh, linemen and linebackers and the ends went down with the assistant. And he, he, he got us all down there in a kind of a circle, and he was kind of walking around. And he said, I don't know anything about anybody, so I just need to get acquainted. So I want you to give me your names. And so they were giving names, giving the names, going around. Got to me, and I said, Gerald Tittle. And he stopped. He said, oh, he said, uh, do you know Kelton Tittle? Are you, know, are you related to him? I said, happens to be my brother. He said, well, I played on the championship football team with him. He said, he was one of my friends. I knew I was in like friends. <laughs> and he said, I'll tell you what, Tidwell, he said, come up here a minute. He said, I want, to teach, I want you to teach these guys a drill. And so he gave me this defensive drill, and I, I, was, I was the guinea pig there. And that day, true story, he made me captain of the defense. Didn't know a thing about me. Had not seen me play a down. Just looking at me, I was a scrawny little old guy. But he chose me in him. My brother. The second illustration comes right out of the New Testament. It's about Onesimus, the runaway slave. There he meets Paul, my friend. I'm going to send you back to Philemon. You've got to go back and make things right. Now, for a slave to, to, to desert or run away, if they were captured, they were executed. If they took anything, they, just, they did it post-haste right on the spot. But he said, I want to send this letter back to Philemon. And that letter has become the epistle to Philemon, which is in the New Testament. And a part of this little epistle reads like this. If he's done anything wrong, if he owes you anything, I'll pay for it. And I want you to receive Onesimus like you receive me. Election is in him. So in eternity past, God looked down and saw us in Christ and said, I want him because, not because of you, but because of him. The occasion of that election is him. The object of that election is that you be holy and blameless before him. Now that phrase before him means to look down into, and this is what it means, that when God looks down into you, he sees you holy and blameless because you are in him positionally. Now notice what he's saying. He's saying you are chosen not because you are holy and blameless. You are chosen because you are meant to be holy and blameless. I love it. Third great truth is found in verse 5. The predestination to adoption. Now, if it's difficult to explain the doctrine of election, it's ten times harder to explain the doctrine of predestination. But I do know something about predestination. I know that predestination in the New Testament always refers to what God does for the saved. Always refers to what God does for the saved. Now, some people say, well, predestination means that some are predestined to be lost and some are predestined to be saved. That doesn't, it doesn't mean that at all. It is a reference to what God has purposed to do for those He has chosen. And if you're saved, you, you've been chosen. Now, 
Election refers primarily to persons. Predestination refers primarily to purpose. And the purpose of predestination is that you might be adopted as sons or daughters. Now, if I'm going to try to define what adoption means in the New Testament, I would look at one verse of Scripture, which is, which is really a summary of, adop- <coughs> of adoption. excuse me. And that verse of Scripture is this, My God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, watch this real carefully. What God has predestined and purposed in His heart is this, that he has saved you in order that he might meet every need you have. Every need you have. Now, pretty soon, uh, Ed and Lisa are going to have a, bring home a baby. Baby's already got a name, so a little girl is down in Guatemala. And they're just waiting to go get Emily, and Emily's just waiting for them to come get her, I would assume. Now, I, I, I don't know what happens when a uh, adopt, an adoptive parent, adopting, adopting parent brings home a baby, but I've got a good feeling something like this. The father has this baby in his arms. Baby is sound asleep, pacifier in the mouth, suck it on a pacifier. And the, daughter, and, and the father gets out with this baby in his hands and he says, See that house, honey? That's your house. Hadn't been for us, you might be living on the streets. But this is your house. And they go in, and as they enter the uh, entranceway, they stop by the kitchen. And the dad goes over, and he opens up the cupboard. He says, see all that formula, darling? That's yours. You're never going to go hungry. Hadn't been for us, you might be bagging scraps. Start up the stairs into that special room, painted just right. See this room, baby? This is your room. All by yourself, it belongs to you. Baby burps. <laughs> see, this, see this crib? This crib is your crib. It's where you're going to sleep. See this closet full of blankets and little frilly clothes and all those shoes, all those diapers? Look at this, darling. This is yours. And I want you to know, sweetheart, that your mother and daddy have made a commitment. You're never going to ever need anything else. That's adoption. And one day God brought you home on his arms. And this is what he said. Son, daughter, see what's in heaven? See that blessing there? I've made a commitment by the ministry of the Holy Spirit that everything you'll ever need in this life is wide open and available to you. Hallelujah. That's adoption. One last thought. This thing crescendos to the idea of redemption. Verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Forgiveness, redemption through His blood. Redemption um, through His blood. Now, Paul doesn't want us to look away too far away from the cross, and so he, he takes our attention and rivets it, rivets it again on the cross. He doesn't want us to glance too far away from Calvary. 
Now there are blessings in heaven and there are purposes in this life and provisions, but he doesn't want us to look too far or too long on those. He takes our eyes and focuses them again on Calvary, redemption. Charles Spurgeon says, I just take a text from anywhere and make a beeline to Calvary. And a little girl was told the story of the cross and she said, that's the saddest story I have ever heard, but it's my favorite. Let me tell you what redemption means. Redemption means to be released, effected by payment of price, by ransom payment, to be set free because somebody paid a big price. I preached this sermon up at McLeod Prison a couple of weeks ago or three. I will have to say that I have preached a, I, I, at McLeod Prison, I have preached a much more lively crowd than this. <laughs> I mean, they hallelujah and amen, everything. And we got into this, we were getting into this sermon pretty heavy, and we got down to this part, released, redeemed. And I felt impressed to say this. A guy just told me he was getting out the next day. I said, gentlemen, you guys can be here in bondage and be free. Or you can be outside and free as I am and in bondage. For stone walls do not a prison make, or iron bars a cage. There is a bondage that is worse than the Department of Corrections, Oklahoma Department of Corrections, ever thought about. And that's the bondage of human sin. And this redemption is that which God effects in the death of Jesus that sets you free to freedom indeed. Now notice the means of this redemption is His blood. He's talking about His death. He did not come to be ministered unto. He came to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. He's, he gave His life as the payment price for your redemption, His blood. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Jesus paid it all. The means of that redemption is His death. The manner of that redemption is the forgiveness of sins, trespasses. Now, that word forgiveness does not mean God says to you, okay, it's all right, I forgive you. It's a word that literally means to send away, to send away. It's the idea of the atonement. When once a year the high priest would go in and take that scapegoat and he'd take the sins of the people symbolically and he'd place them on the head of that scapegoat and send it out into the wilderness to carry the sin away. And Holman Hunt has this little known painting of a, uh, called the scapegoat. Behind is the lion, mountain lion and, and, and lions of mountains and, 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 and there's the Dead Sea and a storm is gathering over it and there's a desert and in the middle of this desert sprawled with his legs protruding outward is this goat with his tongue sticking out of his mouth and he's gasping for breath He's dying, and it's called a scapegoat. And the reference there is that God has taken our sin and has placed them on this 
suffering servant and has driven him out into the wilderness to carry our sins away. You like Max Lucado? You like his new book, Still Move Stones? It tells about Rebecca Thompson. She fell from the Fremont Bridge, stands 112 feet above the North Platte River. She fell from that bridge twice. First time it broke her heart. Second time it broke her neck. When she was 18 years old, she and her 11-year-old sister by the name of Amy were abducted by some hoodlums and Casper and carried 40 miles southwest to the Fremont Bridge overlooking the North Platte River. And there Rebecca Thompson was brutally raped and beaten and she begged them not to do the same to her sister and so they didn't for some reason. But they threw them both off the bridge. Her sister careened off the side of the mountain and died instantly. But Rebecca fell into a part of that river and her life was spared. Her back was broken in five places, but she survived. She wedged herself between a rock and a bank to survive the cold night. The next morning, the sun came up, but the dawn never, never came up in Rebecca's life. So 19 years later, she got in a car with her boyfriend and her two-year-old daughter and drove 75 miles an hour out to the Fremont Bridge and sat down and wept and told the story how she'd been brutally raped and beaten here. And her boyfriend didn't want her to see him for crying, the little girl to see her crying, so she started back to the car with the little girl and she heard a splash. And she knew, he knew that Rebecca had killed herself. Now why'd she do that? Was she afraid, perhaps, because the day she killed herself, these men were released from prison. And she remembered how when she sat in the courtroom and pointed them out as the guilty ones, one of them smirked and put his finger across his neck like that. Maybe she was afraid. Maybe she was guilty. Some people said that behind the veneer of uh, Rebecca Thompson was this guilt that she survived and her sister didn't. Maybe it was shame. She felt shamed, violated, dirty, abused. This is how Lucado puts it. Sometimes your shame is private, pushed over the edge by abusive parents, molested by a perverted parent, seduced by a compromising superior. No one knows, but you know, and that's enough. Sometimes your shame is public, Branded by a divorce you didn't want. Contaminated by a disease you never expected. Marked by a handicap you didn't create. Whether it's actually in your eyes or just in your imagination, you have to deal with it. You're marked a divorcee, an invalid, an, or an orphan, an AIDS patient. Whether public or private, shame is always painful. And unless you deal with it, it's permanent. Unless you get help, the dawn will never come. You're not surprised when I say that there are Rebecca Thompsons in every city and there are Fremont Bridges in every town. And there are many Rebecca Thompsons in the Bible, so many in fact that it almost seems that the pages of Scripture are stitched together with their stories. You've met many of them in this book, each acquainted with the hard floor of the canyon of shame. One of them was a woman taken in the act of adultery. 
Ah, you like to condemn them, don't you? So do I. And so did they. And while they were pointing their fingers of accusation, shame at the woman taken in adultery, Jesus was on his knees in the dust, writing with the same finger that wrote the Ten Commandments and tablets of stone. And he asked this question, Who is there among you who is without sin? And when he stood, he asked the woman, Who condemns you? And she said, No man, Lord. And then he said those glorious words that you and I need to hear, Neither do I forgiven. Forgiven. Redemption means that your sin is as far as the east is from the west. Redemption means that your sin has been buried in an ocean somewhere, gone and forgotten and over with. That's the manner of redemption. And the measure of redemption is according to the riches of His grace. Now that, what that means is this, is that His forgiveness and His redemption is in a manner consistent with His grace. If His grace is infinite, so is your forgiveness. If His grace is unconditional, so is His forgiveness. And so Toscanini finished directing Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And while the crowd roared in thunderous applause, Toscanini said, I am nothing. Big statement for a man with his ego. And then he said to the, to the symphony, you are nothing. Didn't surprise him. He'd been telling that all week. You are nothing. And then he said, Beethoven is everything. I'm nothing. You are nothing. Jesus is everything. And that's the blessing of our spiritual wealth. Let's pray. Our Father, we exult and glory in what is ours in Christ, Jesus, Savior, Lord of Lords, King of Kings. Help us never to take this lightly. And if we have become so familiar with this great truth that we've forgotten the magnitude of it, pray for your forgiveness. For I ask in His name, and for his sake. There are three imitations this morning. I'd like for you to hear, hear this. I'd like for you to consider giving your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Would you place your faith and trust in him? Just step out, come here as an act of trust and faith. To say, I'm placing my faith, my trust, my eternal hope in Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to, to come. A lovely couple came in the early service to join our church. One of the blessings that we enjoy is to be a part of a family called the church. Maybe you'd like to come place your life 
with this wonderful family or to recommit yourself to Jesus Christ that he might be everything to you. While we stand and sing, we invite you to come.